So the book of Hebrews began really beautifully in those first four verses. I mean, you get to see who Jesus is. The prophets came in times past in the Old Testament era. They spoke in many times and in many different ways. And they communicated for God, but it was not a complete or total message until Jesus came. He fulfilled everything that they taught about, everything that they spoke about, uh, and became a better messenger than the prophets. But part of the reason that he was a better messenger than the prophets is that the prophets were merely messengers, but Jesus was the message himself. He came bringing the great salvation, not just saying or speaking the great salvation, but bringing the great salvation in his own body. Every human being born on earth is born in Adam, born in sin, born separated from God. But Jesus came, uh, born of a virgin, lived a perfect and sinless life, and died on the cross and rose from the dead, so that if you believe in him, you're transferred from Adam to being in Christ. You're transferred from being in sin to being forgiven of your sin, from darkness into light. So he came proclaiming the message, showing who God is, the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory we read in those first few verses, but not only declaring the message, but actually bringing and being the message in his own body as he died upon the cross. And in so doing, he became greater than, we saw last week, the prophets themselves, the ultimate word, but he also became and received a name greater than anything in all of creation, including the angelic realm. And in the mind of the people that the author is writing to, the the Hebrew Jewish Christians, angels were on another level. They, they were worthy of great and sincere adoration. As we're going to see when we get into chapter 2, they believed that the angels were the ones who brought the law from God through angels to Moses on Mount Sinai. So they had a high and lofty view of angels. So on one hand, they would say, okay, cool, Jesus is greater than the prophets, But now the author takes it to a new level to say, and Jesus is also greater than the angelic realm. Okay, now this passage that we're going to read today, I read read last week's passage already, but the passage we're going to look at today, I think for some Christians it stands out as a little bit of a confusing kind of passage, and there's two reasons for that in my mind. Number one, the author is going to rapid fire quote from seven Old Testament passages. Now the people he's writing to, they're very familiar with the Old Testament, but I'm sure there's many people in this room who have yet to, in their Christian lives, complete their first reading of the Old Testament. So for many modern believers, all of these quotations from the Old Testament, they can sort of stand out as a, as a you know, a, a, a confusing kind of thing. What is the author getting at? And, and as he quotes these seven uh, Old Testament passages, the way that he gets to Jesus from them is also rather interesting. So I think some of the confusion comes in just the volume of quotations thrust upon us right here at the outset. I think another reason why it sometimes can be murky, this passage we're going to get into today, is because of the issue that he's dealing with. I already alluded to it. He's dealing with the issue of Jesus being greater than the angelic 
realm. Now, make no mistake, this is a big deal. This is an important issue. There are cults on earth today that have deluded the minds of millions of people who have taught that Jesus is an angel equal to the angels, that the angelic realm is uh, not lesser than Christ, but at least equal to or greater than Christ. So it's a big deal to be able to confess and say Jesus is better than the angelic realm. But for most people who have come to Christ and are you know, walking with the Lord, have received and heard the gospel, this isn't like the pressing question of our week or our lives. What you know, does the Bible say about Jesus, and is he better than angels or not? Probably as you were driving to church this morning, you didn't look at the person you came with and say, say to them, you know what I'm really hoping the pastor deals with today? I'm really struggling with the whole, like, is Jesus better than the angels or not better than the angels? We got Christmas time. They're talking, they got angel decorations. Oh, is he better or not? You know, so if the, for the one of you that is wondering that, we're going to settle that today. But it, it almost like you get into this book and you're like, okay, this is great. Jesus is the express image of God, the radiance of his glory. And then the author gets into this long you know, statement about Jesus being greater than the angelic realm. And it can kind of stand out like, okay, well, I wasn't really struggling with that. What's, what's going on? But remember, for the Hebrew people, the, an, the angelic realm was the pinnacle of God's created order. So in a sense, it's like the author is saying, not only is Jesus greater than the angelic realm, he's greater than everything in the entirety of God's created order. You know, if, if, if he was writing to people on the Monterey Peninsula, you know how we are here. If you're like a local, like we take such pride in our community and in how beautiful it is. I even I was at the tree lighting in Monterey, in Monterey the other day. You know, and the mayor was talking about it. Just like every day, it was, he was kind of making it sound like every day is like Christmas in Monterey because we get to live in this beautiful place. You know, and I'm like, yeah, that's right. It's just so gorgeous here, and we're just so proud of it. People come to visit here and everything like that. So if he was writing to us, he might say and give all this demonstration to talk about the created order and the beauty of creation and how Jesus is above that. So, so whatever big thing you can think of that God has made, Jesus is higher than that. So what I'm going to try to do as we go through this, as we read through these different quotations from the Old Testament, I'm going to try to just focus on three questions, okay? Three questions, and they're very simple. Here they are. You guys ready? Question number one is, from this passage... Who is Jesus? From this passage, who is Jesus? All the quotations that the author is going to give, who is Jesus? Number two, we'll answer secondarily and rather quickly, who are the angels? Who are the angels? And then lastly, from verse one through four of chapter two, we're going to answer the question, and who are we? In this text, who are we? So who is Jesus? Who are the angels, and who are we? Okay, so that's the introduction. You guys ready to actually read the verses themselves? Let's get into it, starting in verse 5. The writer records, he says, after saying in verse 4, like we read, that Jesus has a name higher than the angels, better than the angels, he says in verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and then, he quotes, and this is a quotation from Psalm 2, you are my son, 
Today I have begotten you. So the, the, the author is asking, when did God ever say that to the angelic world? He didn't say to the angels, you are my son. He said that of Jesus. Now think about the life of Christ. There were different moments where the father spoke and said, you are my beloved son. You know, at the baptism of Jesus, this was said. When he went into the water, came out of the water, the, the spirit descended in bodily form and the Father spoke from heaven and said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then there was another time during the life of Jesus where he went to the mountaintop to pray with his disciples, with Peter, James, and John, and he began to radiate with the glory from God from within. It began to shine outside of him. The, the disciples woke up. They saw uh, Moses and Elijah back from the dead. They're talking with Jesus, and they were blown away by it. And Peter said, let's build tents and stay here. We should just stay on top of the mountain. This is really great. And the father spoke again and said, this is my beloved son, hear him. So Moses is great, Elijah is great, but Jesus, he's my son. You should listen to him. He's not in the same cluster or group with Moses and Elijah. He's in a different category above them. And then interestingly enough, when Paul was preaching his first recorded message in the book of Acts chapter 13, he talked about the Father at the resurrection of Jesus, bearing witness through the resurrection that Jesus is his Son. So the first thing that we learn about and, and answering the question, who is Jesus? Well, we learn from this quotation, he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Now he goes on to quote a few other, a couple of other Old Testament verses to back up that statement. He also, there in verse 6, is it, or excuse me, verse 5, is it still on the screen? You're like, man, no, verse 5, let's go back. Go back to verse 5. Click. There we go. You're like, man, Nate's not getting very far. We're only halfway through verse 5. He goes on and says, or again, and this is from 2 Samuel, verse 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now that comes from 2 Samuel 7. We went through the life of David this year, and when we came to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David that he would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. And when David's son Solomon was born, a lot of the things that God said about David's son came to pass in Solomon, but then Solomon died, and all of the prophets and biblical writers, they communicated, we're still waiting for that promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7 to be fulfilled. We're still waiting for the one who will sit on David's throne forever. The one who God will be a father of, and he will be to, to God the Father a son too. And then verse 6, we can finally go to the next slide. And again, and this comes from probably Psalm 97, he says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. All right, so what you have here, we're learning who is Jesus. Well, he's the son of God, but he's the begotten son of God and the firstborn son of God is what, is what the author says. He's the begotten son of God and the firstborn son of God. What that, what that means, the, the word begotten, 
is a word that does not mean that Jesus had a beginning. The New Testament and Old Testament are very clear on that, 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 that Jesus Christ had no beginning. Listen to this from John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. John says, in the beginning was the Word. And later on, he makes it very clear when he talks about the Word, he's talking about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So what that means is that whenever the beginning occurred, Jesus was already pre-existent. He was already there. So he is the son of God from eternity past. He's always been. But he was begotten in the sense that when he died on the cross for the sin of the world, it was announced to the world, this is my son. This is my son, and this is what he has done for you. Not only is he begotten, but he's also the firstborn. This does not speak, again, of Jesus' beginning. It speaks of his status. In Hebrew culture, the firstborn would, would have a certain position in the family. And so we're learning the position that Christ has within the triunity of God. So the first thing we learn about Jesus, he is the Son of God, or you could say it this way, he is God the Son. But let's go on and see in verse 7 who else the author thinks Jesus is. He says, of the angels, verse 7, and here he's going to quote from Psalm 104, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So God creates these angels and uh, they you know, are like in his presence winds or flames of fire. But, verse 8, of the Son... He says, this is God the Father speaking, and this is a quote from Psalm 45. This is what God says. God says, of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Last week, somebody asked me, they're like, I read Hebrews 1 before I came in today. Is verse 8 saying that God the Father says to Jesus, you are God? Is that what it's saying? And that's exactly what it's saying. God the Father says, Your throne, O God, speaking to Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the second thing that we learn about Jesus from these quotations, not only is he the Son of God, but he is God enthroned. He is God enthroned. He is God enthroned. And this speaks of him having a kingdom that lasts, as it says in verse 8, forever and ever. It never ends. And, and, and his kingdom has the perfect balance within it in that verse 9 he says, it's one in which he as king on the throne loves righteousness, but he also has been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all of his companions. Don't you love that? It's, it's sometimes with, with the way humans work, it's like you kind of feel like people have one or the other. They're either very righteous and upright and you know all about justice, but they're also kind of too serious to enjoy or hang out with or spend any time with. They're just very serious. Or they're just super happy people, but they're like, I just really don't care about any of it, you know, kind of thing. But Jesus cares immensely. He has uprightness and righteousness, but he also is anointed with the oil of gladness beyond everyone. That's what his kingdom is going to be like forever and ever and ever. That's what we learn here is that he is God enthroned. Thirdly, 
we also learn in verse 10, let's go on reading this. He says, and this is from Psalm 102. He says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The thing that we see here about Jesus is that Jesus, not only is he the Son of God, not only is he God enthroned, but he is also the Creator God. That's what's being highlighted there from Psalm 102. Jesus is the one who, according to the author and this quotation from Psalm 102, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Everything we see is the work of his hands. He announces, he says, all of them, the creation, they're going to grow old like a garment. You know, you're going to wrap them up. They're going to be put aside. This is an interesting statement because in the Greco-Roman world that these people were living in, one predominant thought was that the universe had no end, that it was eternal. But here the author is saying, no, the universe is not eternal, but Christ, the one who created it, he is eternal. He will last forever, and he is unchanging. Hebrews 13, verse 8, which we'll get to in a couple of months, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the third thing we learn about Jesus is that he is creator God. And then finally, the fourth thing and the last thing that we learn about Jesus from these quotations comes in verse 13. Let's read it together. He says, and to which of the angels has God, has he ever said, and this comes from Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So what he's saying here is that after Jesus died and rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples for 40 days, I was talking to a guy this morning, he asked me, he's like, they really saw him? They saw him for 40 days? And it's, yeah, they saw him for 40 days. They went to their deaths preaching that they had seen Jesus risen from the grave with their own eyes and touched him with, his hand, with their own hands and eaten food with him. And after he lived with them, it appeared to them for 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the Father said to him, sit at my right hand and let's wait for that moment where I take all of your enemies and I put them under your feet. I make them your footstool. So what we learn here is that Jesus is a God who is to be served. Jesus is a God who is to be served. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think that the author has a high view of Jesus or not? I mean, this is an incredibly high view of Christ. He sees Jesus as the Son of God and God the Son. He sees him as the one who is worthy to be worshipped, seated upon his throne. He sees Jesus as the creator of all things, and he sees Jesus as one who is worthy of being served. And by the way, this should be our relationship with Jesus. We should have that kind of awe and admiration for who he is, to see him as the son of God, to see him as the creator, the one worthy of worship, and of course, the one worthy of our service here in this life. So that is his view of who Jesus is. Now, we should answer, secondly, the question, who are the angels? And 
This doesn't take much time to answer from this passage. We already read verse 5 all the way through verse 14. Uh, But from those same passages where you're learning who Jesus is, the author also wants to tell us who angels are. Now, Now, angels are interesting. The Bible isn't really about angels. It's not a big book about angels. There's no book of the Bible that deals exclusively with the angelic realm. So as you're going through the Bible, there are certain things that you have to kind of deduce about angels because it's not you know, a book that is primarily dealing with them, their world, their kind, you know, but it's, it's dealing with God and his relationship with humanity, his process of saving our souls from our own sin. But the Bible does make clear that the angelic realm exists, that God created an angelic realm. It appears that there came a point when about a third of the angelic realm made a decision to rebel against God. And to and and they were led by uh, Lucifer, or uh, who became Satan, who was one of the anointed cherubs. It seems from Ezekiel and Isaiah, who was one of the angels who led the worship of God in heaven. But it, with pride, he was lifted up. He was lifted up with pride in his heart and led a rebellion. With the best we can tell, if there was a number on it, a third of the angelic realm, and they became disembodied spirits. And so, when in the New Testament we say that we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. That's part of what we'd be thinking about, a demonic realm who are fallen angels who have been disgraced because they rebelled against uh, the Lord. So uh, all of that to say, though, that the question, you know, who is angels, who are angels, we're going to see the answer, you know, in in this passage, at least to some small uh, degree. I remember when I was uh, 16 years old, I'd had my driver's license for about three months, and uh, one foggy Pacific Grove morning, I woke up, I grew up in Pacific Grove, I drove out to Carmel for something, and then was on my way back, it was still early in the morning, and I had a, I had a 1969 Volkswagen uh, Beetle. It was really cool, it was baby blue, and, and uh, I was cruising along and I was going too fast, and it, the ground was wet. My tires were probably a little bit bald. And I, so I lost control of my car and you know, began to spin out of control. It was all slow motion and everything. And I went over the embankment right there on, by Skyline Forest on Highway 68 and went over the edge. And by the time I got to the edge and went over the side, my car was moving this way. So you know, I just basically went over the side and a huge tree just hit my car kind of right behind uh, my my hip kind of area, and my car went down the embankment, and I was down below. I couldn't see the road. You know, it's you know twenty thirty feet down below, and uh, because Volkswagens, those old ones, were not uh, you know very strong vehicles, uh, it had just like a, a aluminum can just like kind of kicked in where the tree was, and so my body was. Although I was still buckled in, the seatbelt went around my body and then was buckled in like right here, what was supposed to be. A, so I was basically seated in the passenger's seat. And my foot was stuck in between the clutch and the sidewall, and I was hurt, but you get a lot of adrenaline when you're in an accident like that, so you don't really know if you're hurt or whatever. But I was scared. And I didn't know what to do. 
I didn't know if anybody had seen me. I didn't know if anybody would see me. I was down there. You couldn't see me from Highway 68, but fortunately, somebody who was there at the intersection, they had a cell phone. They were like one of the 10 people on the Monterey Peninsula who had a cell phone at the time, and they called 911, and pretty soon the you know uh, fire uh, trucks came and the paramedics and everything. But before that, while I was there just by myself, uh, this man came down from... Highway 68, he, he climbed down. And I don't remember him all that well. I just remember that my best memory is that he looked kind of like MacGyver. He had like a flannel shirt on and everything. And he came, this is what I remember, he came and sat next to me. He calmed me down and he cut my seatbelt off for me to alleviate that pressure because it really hurt. And then that's the last I remembered of him. And then they came eventually, the fire trucks got there and everything, they came, they came down, they had to cut the roof off of the car, they couldn't open that door, they couldn't open any of the doors, they cut the roof off, they pulled me out, took me to the hospital, uh, the CHP officer followed me there, gave me a, a ticket, <laughs> driving too fast for conditions, and, uh, and, then, and then they were going to let me go home, and I stood up, and then when I stood up, I started falling over because I had fractured the second lumbar in my back. I couldn't support my weight, and so I went back down on the table. They took you know, more x-rays or whatever and fit me for a cast and stuff like that. But I began asking around, hey, did anybody you know, talk to anybody, get a report from that guy who came down and helped me? And the, the person that called, uh, that had seen me go over, the firemen, the paramedics, the CHP, no one had any idea who I was talking about. But I remember this guy so distinctly. He comforted me. He helped me. So people in my life at, at that time, they just began really thinking that the Lord had sent an angel to be with me in that moment of distress in, in my life. I, I don't know with any certainty. I just know that he was a cool guy. <laughs> really brought a lot of comfort into my life. But if, if, if I ever had a knowing encounter with the angelic realm, that probably would have been it. So they're cool. You know, we learn, we're going to learn in chapter 13 that he's going to tell us in a closing exhortation, hey, think about the way that you entertain strangers because some of you have hosted angels unawares. You didn't even know. Okay, so I'm saying a lot of things about angels. You're like, oh, you, I thought you said that there wasn't much about angels, and here I'm saying a lot about angels. So what, is the, what, is, what do we learn about angels from the text, though? Well, just four things real quickly. If Jesus is the Son of God, then what we learn in verse 5 through 6 is that angels are worshipers of the Son of God. They worship Jesus. That's why it says in verse 6, let all God's angels worship Him. So if He's the Son of God, angels worship Him. Number two, if Jesus is God enthroned, the angels, they minister around His throne. They they serve him around his throne. That's why it says in verse 7, he makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They're there in his presence, serving God, adoring God, singing to the Lord, bowing down before him. If Jesus is the creator, then angels are part of the creation. That's why in verse 7 it says he makes his angels. He's the one who creates them. Or he laid the foundation, verse 10, of the earth, and the heavens are the work of his hands. So they are part of his creation. And then notice in verse 14, 
if Jesus is seated on the throne and served, they are his servants. Verse 14, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So Jesus, he's God the Son, the Son of God, and they're worshipers of him. Jesus is seated on his throne and they are gathered around his throne worshiping him. Jesus created and they are part of his creation. And Jesus is waiting for his kingdom to come fully and completely as he's seated there in heaven. And they are his servants. They help and do the things that he desires for them to do. Okay, let's close with this. Who are we? Third and last question. Who are we? We've looked at who is Jesus, who are the angels, but who are we? Number three. Well, let's read in verse one through four together. He says, therefore, chapter two, verse one through four, sorry. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. One of the first things that we have to learn about ourselves is that we, if you're a believer today, we are, number one, recipients of a great salvation. That's what this passage tells us. And part of the reason why it tells us this here is because, think about this, the Hebrew Christian was infatuated with angels partly because they believed angels delivered the law to Moses. They, they believed they were the delivery mechanism for God to deliver the Ten Commandments to Moses. And he alludes to that in verse 2. He talks about how the angels came, they delivered the law, and everybody was held accountable to the thing that Moses had delivered to the nation. So with that in the Hebrew Christian's mind, man, these angels, they delivered the law, you know, and all of that. What, what he's trying to tell us here is that we, we have received a great salvation that Jesus delivered. Angels might have brought the Ten Commandments to Moses, but Jesus brought us our great salvation. There's a contrast here with the angels, because the angels, as far as we can deduce from Scripture, they cannot get saved. They cannot experience salvation. There seems there was a one-time decision to rebel against the Lord, and then that was it. Satan and his legions, they are destined for the lake of fire that God has prepared for them. Whereas human beings, we can receive this great salvation from the Lord. Notice the way he describes this great salvation. He says, we heard about it in verse 1 and 2. In other words, someone had to actually tell us about this message. Not only did we hear about it, but we heard it originally, he says in verse 3, from people who'd heard. They were eyewitnesses. They'd heard Jesus, and they then communicated what they had seen and heard. Notice also that God himself was a witness of this great salvation in verse 4 when he says God bore witness by signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Spirit. 
In other words, when Jesus was walking on earth and performing miracles, when in the book of Acts, the early church over those 30 years of time were from time to time performing miracles, all of those miracles were partly designed to back up the message that they preached. So here we are, you know, Jesus is preaching or the apostles are preaching and then a miracle is done. It was supposed to be kind of backing up like a sign saying this message that they declare is true. But not only that, the miracles themselves were supposed to give not just a sign that the message was true, but a little bit of a hope about the kind of salvation that God is working. In other words, when you see in the life of Jesus, Jesus walking up to someone paralyzed and touching them and giving them wholeness of body, or walking up to someone who has leprosy and touching them and taking away their leprosy, or walking up to someone who's blind, touching them and taking away their blindness, what you're not meant to conclude is that, and this is many ministries and churches kind of get stuck right here, you're not supposed to conclude, well, if we just have enough faith today, if we just have enough belief today, then those things will happen to us today. I believe that God can do those things today, but I don't think it's like a big faith contest to see who can get God to do those things on this side of eternity. It seems that it's a little glimpse into the full salvation that Christ has won for us, that by his blood, all the sickness and death and disease and brokenness that we see here on earth, it's like a little glimpse into what Jesus has won in his new and heavenly and eternal kingdom. All right, so Jesus came and he brought us this great salvation. It was declared, verse 3, first by the Lord. So who are we? We are recipients of a great salvation. The, The one who is the Son of God decided to become one of us. The one who created all things decided to take on human flesh. The one who is seated upon the throne with the angelic realm swirling around him, worshiping him, decided to hang out with guys like his disciples. You know, put himself in the middle of a a group of guys who should have been on their face worshiping him constantly, but were you know, always arguing and debating and saying silly things, you know, and stuff like that. He made a decision to do all of that. We have this great salvation. So who are we? We're recipients of a great salvation who should heed that great salvation. That's what he says in verse 1. Would you read it with me again with your own eyes? Look at it in verse 1. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This great salvation that we have received, we must make sure that we do not drift away from it. It's a, it's a nautical term that the author uses. The idea is, out on a body of water, if you're not anchored, you just begin to drift. And there is a danger in the Christian life of receiving this glorious message. You know, that God, the Creator, enthroned, became flesh, dwelt among us, died on the cross for our sin, rose from the grave. We believed in him. Now we will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then yawning after saying or thinking about all of that. No, we are in danger. We must 
pay much closer attention to the thing that we've heard. We must give super abundant, frequent, and extra effort to obeying and submitting and applying and having care about and full devotion to the things that we've heard. We must have a vigilant clinging to the truth of the gospel lest it slips away from our hearts. We do not want to drift. Imagine, if you will, because this word drift away is also sometimes used to describe something like a ring on your finger that is too big and it slowly slips off. Imagine someone you care about deeply giving you a ring of infinite value. And let's just imagine for the sake of the illustration that the rule is that you can't take it off but that you also can't have it tightened. It's, it's going to be there on your finger. It's going to be big, but you love it and appreciate it so much. What, what would happen is, over time, you would begin to you, you'd begin walking around with a clenched fist. You'd make sure. You'd, you'd be conscious of. You'd be thinking of. In the moment that you stopped thinking about it, stopped setting your mind upon it, it would begin to slip from your finger. The idea here of this gospel, this great salvation that we've received, is that we must pay much closer attention. We must give earnest heed, have a firm grip, listen very carefully, think constantly about this great salvation that we've received. We must not, we are a people who, because we've received this great salvation, must not neglect this great salvation, he goes on to say in verse 3. Look at it again with me. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, this great salvation is there. We can neglect it. There are consequences for neglecting it. Instead, we must cultivate this great salvation that we have received. So think about it with me for a moment. I'm just going to close up by offering a few suggestions as to how to cultivate rather than neglect your great salvation if you're a believer here today. And I want you to think as a theme for this of Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What he doesn't mean by that is try to be saved, try to get saved with your own works. Now, what he means is, if you're saved, if Christ is living inside your heart, then work out that salvation. Live it out with respect and reverence, worship of the Lord, fear and trembling. So how can we do that? Let me give you six suggestions. One way that people often neglect their salvation is by neglecting their personal relationship with God. Neglecting their personal relationship with God. Did you know that Jesus came to earth because God wanted to reconcile humanity with himself. He, he wanted to bring you into right relationship with him. People will usually respond to the question, do you pray, by saying, yes, I pray. But it's by the blood of Jesus that we're actually able to pray and be heard by the Lord. So when we drift from the Lord, when we neglect our great salvation, I find that we begin to fall away from, we begin to walk away from that personal time and experience with the Lord. You remember the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus commended them. You've got great doctrine, he said. You've done many great things for me, he said. 
but I have this against you, you've left your first love. They'd begun to walk away from their original devotion to the Lord. Now, now look, the, the truth of the matter is that there could be a few people here who have been in Christ, have been believers for 20 or 30 years, and you still have never uh, really had a dedicated time where you pray, where you read the word, you know, things like that. And I'd encourage you to get going, you know, get going with that. Start enjoying your relationship with the Lord. But there could be many of you here who as you've been walking with the Lord and going through life, you've begun to neglect that part of your life. And I'd encourage you to get back to that, to get back to that, to begin enjoying the Lord afresh. Uh, when I was very young in Christ, the theme verse for me in learning how to pray came from 1 Peter chapter 5, where he says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. I listen to these people talking about their really complex prayer lives and all these, you know, acronyms, you know, acts is the acronym, adore, confess, thanksgiving, supplication, and I kind of would like start praying, I'm like, okay, I got to adore, you know, so like, adore time, you know, or whatever, and then confess or whatever, and, you know, and those can be helpful to, to think about, but the way I began to learn to pray at least was by just taking everything that was a concern or a weight in my heart and talking to my Father in heaven about it. So don't neglect your personal relationship with God. Also, another way that people sometimes neglect their great salvation is by neglecting, uh, I'll explain this, but neglecting the corporate gathering or the, the gathering together of the saints. And wh what I mean by that is not so much a they don't come, although it can mean that, and so, you know, you can give yourself a little pat on the back today, like, I came. But what I mean by that is, you know how it is, anything that you do week after week after week in your life, you can begin to kind of do in a going through the motions kind of way, can't you? And so for us, we have to make sure that we don't neglect our great salvation, and when we gather together, that we are throwing our whole heart into what we're doing. I mean, you can, you, maybe you've had this experience. It's possible for someone to have their eyes closed, their hands raised, you know, during worship time, singing the song, you know, accurately to the Lord. And in the back of their minds, they're thinking about, are we going to go to Chipotle after the service? You know, you know, all those kind of things. You have to really, one of the prayers that I've prayed over the years comes from Jesus's parable about the good soil my prayer is that our, our hearts would be more and more the good soil that's ready to receive the word of God. So don't neglect your great salvation. Don't go through the motions in our corporate gathering. Take advantage of it. And then another way that sometimes people will neglect their great salvation is by neglecting their service to the church. Many of you have a ministry, you know, something you do for the Lord. It might be something that you feel is small, might be something that you feel is, you know, a really big, you know, time-consuming kind of thing. It might be an hour-a-week commitment, it might be a 40-hour-a-week commitment, you know, but whatever it is, when you're doing those things, I found that as time goes by, eventually this thing kind of creeps into our heart where we forget the why of that ministry in the first place. So maybe you got involved in Calvary Kids or something like that, and you're like, because I love God, and I love the gospel, and I want kids to know Jesus, and I want the 
parents to be able to be free to come and worship Jesus. And that's like, why? And then like time goes by and it's, and, and then it's like, hey, why are you doing that? And you're like, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just, I've, I'm on, cause I'm on the schedule, you know, or something like that. Or, you know, maybe you start, like I started ushering because, you know, I wanted people to be able to come into the house of the Lord, see a friendly face, a smile, feel the love of Jesus in some small capacity. And then over time, you know, why are you doing, I don't know. I just kind of, this is what I do, you know, kind of thing. We've got to continually come back to, reconnect to the why. A fourth way that we can cultivate our great salvation, this is in no way an exhaustive list, but we can make sure that we retain a commitment to Christian community. When you got saved, if you're a believer today, you were not saved as an individual. I mean, he did save you individually, but he bought you and put you into a family, into a body, into a community of believers. And I've found that oftentimes when someone begins to kind of drift this is one of the chief ways that it happens. And it seems like it was a chief way for the people that the author is writing to because in chapter 10, he's going to talk to them specifically about making sure they don't neglect the gathering together of the saints. So some of them had been tempted to do that. And a lot of times this is how it works. You know, so Someone will maybe get into a small group or something like that. A couple years go by, they build friendships in the church and in the community. They feel like they have their friendships. And then this is what will happen. They'll say to themselves, why do I need to commit to Christian community anymore? I already have my friends. But the thing is, is that for mature believers to be with immature believers and immature believers to be with mature believers is a really important thing. And there are people out there who don't have their friends. There are people out there who need that human connection. They need to pray. Some people will say, well, it's awkward. Well, good. You know, it should be. If you're only with people that make you feel comfortable and it's just always flowing and stuff like that, that's just us picking the easiest kind of people to be in relationship with. It's good for us to be stretched, tested, you know, expand, you know, all of that. So committing to the body of Christ. Fifthly, we can cultivate our great salvation by continuing to desire to grow as individual believers. Don't say things like, you know, I, I've, I've read the Bible. As, like it's a past tense kind of thing. Like I know all of that. Don't say that. Don't, don't talk like that. I and mean, if you have read the whole Bible, good. If you've read the whole Bible 10 times, good. If you've read the whole Bible 20 times, good. But can you recite it? I don't, I'm sure you couldn't. It is, it, you know, the, the lessons that you got from this book when you were 25 years old, are you still going to hang out on those lessons? Or now that you're 55, are there fresh ways in which that same truth needs to find a current application in your heart? So continue to read, not just the Word, but read about the Word. Read people teaching the Word. Continue to listen to good, solid teaching. Continue to grow. Say, I want to grow as a human being. I tell you what, when I was 18 years old, walking with the Lord, I was reading zero books about how to be a good Christian parent. None. I had no kids. It was the last thing on my mind. I wasn't thinking about it. I started having kids. I'm reading. 
You know, start having, you know, toddlers, I'm reading. You have elementary age kids, I'm reading. Teenagers, reading and praying and fasting, you know? <laughs> the whole thing. Oh, I love my teenagers. They're great. But, you know, to be a person that says, yeah, you know, I got to keep growing. I haven't arrived. And then lastly, number six, let your hunger for the lost continue to grow. That should be a hunger that grows in your Christian life, that develops in your Christian life, that starts out here, but then just over time, cultivate. It's a great salvation. You want more and more people to know of this great salvation. Part of the reason I say that is because I, I think over the you know, last 40 years in this church body, incredible things have happened. Good stuff has happened. And I've enjoyed being the pastor for the last, you know, the, the lead pastor, the main teaching pastor for the last almost 11 years. I've really, it's been great. And God is doing some really neat things. And some of you have been around for decades, and some of you have been around for a couple of weeks. But I rejoice at what God is doing. But inevitably in a church, a spirit can creep up within the hearts of the people where, it feel, where there's kind of this feeling like, well, we've arrived. You know, we're, we're good. And I guess I just want you guys to know how I feel about that. I just feel like we have barely scratched the surface on all that there is to do. I do not feel in any way like we've arrived. I feel like every time we get together and God works, it is an absolute miracle from Him. And I look out at our community and I feel that we have barely made an impact and that there are thousands of people who still need to know the Lord, grow in Christ, learn about Jesus, learn about His Word. And so, you know, we just can't, you know, as, you, as you're kind of going through the motions and all of that, you, you have to kind of get back to like, oh yeah, but we, we haven't arrived. There's still so much work for us to do as a body of believers. You guys agree with that? Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.